0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, my Dr. Voctor, Michael Bird, returns to talk about a few new projects he's been working on. One is the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers that he recently released with Scott Harrower. So, we'll talk a little bit about the Apostolic Fathers and some of their writings and some of the people from the early church. We also talk about his new book that seeks to help Christians understand the Bible better. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. Check out some of the resources like the Ancient Faith Study Bible, the Spurgeon Study Bible, the Christian Standard Commentary, and a whole host of others to help the church understand and read their Bibles better. And now, my conversation with Michael Byrd. But first, no big deal. All right. The Dr. Vater is here. Mike Bird. I think it's been at least a year and a half, maybe two years since you've come on Church Grammar. So um, you're a busy man. So I'm glad to have you back.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, we've been separated by an ocean and a pandemic, but always good to talk to the uh, Dr. Son. What is the what
0: is the um, word for secondary supervisor? Z- 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 I don't know.
1: Sure. weiter Dr. Vata, I think. Yeah.
0: Your German is definitely know. better than whatever I uh, you know crammed into my brain for my dissertation.
1: So. Yeah, well um it can it can geboren würden. Genau the von Paderborn. I was born in Germany so. I don't think I picked up anything while I was there since I left when I was 6 months old but there we are. Maybe your love of uh, beer. That's probably what you picked up yeah. your most, right? Not really, not really. <laughs> maybe, All right, maybe, let's maybe, talk maybe rotwein, rotwein.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about your, I've uh, got two things I want to talk about today, kind of your two new books, your uh, Cambridge Companion to Apostolic Fathers, which you did with Scott Hareware, who was my, uh, whatever you just said, secondary supervisor, whatever that is. Um, and then let's talk about seven things I wish Christians knew about the Bible. So it'd be kind of a, we'll kind of go Apostolic Fathers, church history, and then we'll swing over to some hermeneutics interpretation stuff. So uh, starting with the Apostolic Fathers, you know, I think among evangelicals in particular, there is a lack of knowledge of most things before the Reformation, probably. Um, I usually joke with my students that most evangelicals thought the church started in 1500, uh, in 1517, maybe 1689, depending on the Baptist. So, you know, kind of know Athanasius, might know Gregory Nazianus, and might know Aquinas, at least know the names, right? But I think the further back you get, even more ignorance is there, probably. And so Apostolic Fathers, I feel like, maybe is even worse than any other sort of part of church history. Um, And so what I want to do is just kind of give an introduction. If there's students listening, pastors, others who are interested in the Apostolic Fathers, just kind of walk through some some major things about them. Because particularly if you think about First Clement and the Didache, probably the two earliest that were written, uh, both of these were written around the time of the end of the New Testament writings, right? So you get a pretty good look into what Christian life was like, kind of at at least somewhat, to what it was like for the biblical authors and their audience. So maybe you could start there. Just talk about maybe the context of that early, right around the turn of the, of the century there. Uh, what can we learn? What can we see in the Apostolic Fathers that might tell us some things about that?
1: We see a, a number of things. First of all, this group stretches from like you know around about 70 AD, depending on how early you date the Didache, uh, some people date it very early, so it was actually used by Matthew. I tend to think it was probably a little bit later than that, so I think it's late first, early second century. So, the, the Dickey is a book basically of instructions for the church, like you know, how to do a baptism, you know, watch out for um, you know, traveling mega church pastors, kind of you know, <laughs> flogging off their latest book as they come by your church, sort of the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Clement was a uh, a, a bishop in Rome, one of the first bishops in Rome, and he wrote a famous letter to the Corinthians in his first first letter. The second letter is not really by Clement, it's more like written in his name, but first Clement is written trying to help the Corinthian churches out with some um, division issues that they have, and he kind of offers them some advice. We see a number of things. First of all, this is the sort of generation that kind of partly overlaps with the end of the New Testament era. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, you know, one Clement could be written earlier than the gospel of John or the revelation of John, you know, it, it comes down to, or, you know, maybe even, you know, Acts, depending on where you date these books. Uh, so it, it kind of overlaps with the end of the New Testament. And then that sort of post 100 era, and you've got and numerously, you've got people like, you know, Clement, you've got um, Papias, You've got Polycarp, and these are the leaders who provide a living link between the generation of the apostles and then with second century Christianity. So the the real crucial link in the chain is the faith is transmitted, and as Christianity is growing and spreading around the Greco-Roman world, and they're they're becoming probably into a little bit more on the radar of Roman officials who were kind of a little bit suspicious about them. You see a continuing sectarian rivalry with Jewish communities. You get that particularly in the case of Ignatius of Antioch, who's writing in the early second century, uh, on the way to his martyrdom of of all places. Uh, You also see that the the church may be becoming a little bit more uh, institutionalised, although you've got to put institutionalised in kind of like scare quotes, what that means. (laughs) As a now developing partly you could say hierarchies but also more uh deliberate systems in order to manage these growing these growing churches and i mean we can debate about you know what was the role of an actual uh, bishop Mm -hmm. uh you know early on and and when does the a mono episcopacy or a, a region governed by a single bishop when does that really crystallize it's, it's also a time where you see Christians beginning to think more uh, about their faith, how to express devotion of Jesus, you know, in light of the, the Jewish scriptures that the Christians affirmed, uh, beginning to quote and mention the apostolic writings that we would call the New Testament. I mean, that's, that's interesting that they're now quoting the writings of the apostles, they're now writing the, quoting the gospels and treating them as, as um, graphae, mm-hmm. as scripture, not yet canon because that's a different category that comes later, but certainly there's a sacred status being attributed to people like the writings of Paul, the evangelists, especially Matthew, everyone, everyone loves Matthew. So you, you get the development also of a scriptural consciousness coming through as well. So that's why the, the apostolic fathers are an important generation, that crucial link between the apostles and the second century. Uh, they're more on the radar of the Romans. Uh, they're writing uh, letters in facing various problems, persecution, divisions, in some cases, just handing on teaching materials to the next generation. And yeah, just trying to be the, the church in the context they are from Rome all the way to Syria.
0: Well, you talk about the Didache sort of starting to, you know, some examples there of starting to systematize what a church order might look like, what liturgy might look like, or at least start reflecting maybe what's already happening. And, you know, as a Baptist, I love that, you know, in the dedicate, there's a lot of conversation about adult converts, immersion, pouring over their heads if you don't have anywhere to dunk them. So as know, a just, last resort, as a last, you can
1: sprinkle <laughs> as a last resort. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I think uh, cold water is last resort, right? I think everybody's allowed to be dunked. I think that's That's, that's at least how I'm going to read it. So yeah, people uh, like to point back to Didache and say, well, whatever, whenever baby sprinkling happened, it wasn't what the, uh, what the first century church was doing. Cause Didache proves that. So
1: does that work for you? Yeah. We we could discuss that over another day, another day, Brandon, (laughs) Uh, but But there is a covenant theology needs to be
0: imbibed in there. I think mm, I do believe in the covenants in the Bible. So I think, I think we're basically on the same page. (laughs) If people could see the looks that you're giving me right now, um, so in, in the Didache though, you do get uh, you do get you know how to appoint officers and all kinds of random things. So is there anything that that you think we could draw, particularly about perhaps what the what a liturgy looked like, what a church service looked like, that would be different from what we do now, or maybe some continuity there? Is there anything that we can we can kind of draw from that?
1: Well, I mean the Didache, and, and there's some other documents here like Justin Martyr, what he says about early Christian worship, or Pliny talking about the, uh, the sort of worship practices of Christians in Bithynia in the first quarter of the second century. They seem to have a number of things going on. There seems to be a gathering, prayers, uh, reading of the Gospels, reading the Old Testament, some kind of a sermon, uh, singing singing hymns to, to God, to Christ as to a God, various sorts of, you know, promises not to do anything, you know, immoral kind of during the week, that type of thing. And uh, importantly, something of a climax seems to be a what well, was either a meal or at least part of a meal where they would break bread and, and have wine together to commemorate the, the death of the Lord and look for, for, forward to his return. So you, you get that. And it gets a little bit diverse you know, you know, and the sort of things they do uh, types of prayers they pray. Um, you know, I think the Lord's prayer was probably used pretty, pretty early and, and, and very widely um, and, and different liturgies develop in places like Syria, Ephesus, Rome, uh, or, I mean, Christians also start um, um, having their own calendar. Like, you know, um, if you're going to celebrate Easter, what's the, what's the proper date for celebrating Easter? Mm-hmm. Let's get you into the quarto decimillion crisis where there was different practices in Rome and the churches in, in Asia Minor. So, I mean, and the, and the Didache is a window into that because it shows us some of the things Christians were praying. I mean, in particular, the, um, the liturgy surrounding the Lord's Supper you get in the Didache is, is quite amazing. And they kind of, you know, celebrate, you know, people coming from the east and the west, you know, all the elements coming, being brought together, you know, even the, the one loaf, one body. So it's, it's quite an elegant liturgy. And you've got prayers kind of like the, the Lord's Prayer in there as well. Uh, in the Didache, you've also got the Maranatha Prayer, um, Our Lord Come, which again would indicate uh, it's, it's probably associated with a, a Jewish community, most likely in Syria, I think in, in the late first century. So, yeah, it's, it's a, the Didache is a wonderful window into how Christians uh, worship. So do you think that
0: that was a kind of a widespread type? I mean, you talked about the distinctions even in different regions or whatever of how they were doing certain liturgies. But, I mean, if, if we say Didache is around the 100, you know, 100 AD, we'll say. What is that? Does that, do you think there's any continuity there that we could see to say, Hey, when Paul was writing to Corinth, I mean, we know that Corinth apparently hadn't gotten their act together because uh, of first Clement, they're still, uh, they're still divided. But um, when he's writing to Corinth, when, you know, John is, is, you know, his, his gospels being circulated, whatever it is, do you think we, we get a pretty good idea there? Is there any indication that there may have been some changes already, or just what are your thoughts on, on that in terms of kind of what maybe even the biblical authors were setting up and doing what the apostles were doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was probably a diversity from the beginning, you know, depending where you were. I mean, it's the apostles began a lot of time meeting in the temple, the porticoes of the temple, you know, talking, praying, you know, debating with other people. Then they would meet in other people's homes where they would break bread, you know, prayers for healing, you know, that kind of a thing. And then when you're out in some of the provinces, say, like, you know, you know, Achaia, you know, where Corinth is. You got people meeting in places like shops. Uh, maybe there's a more wealthy person who's got a slightly bigger house, and and you could have meetings between, I don't know, twenty to fifty people coming together. And yeah, and Paul k- gives us a fair idea in, in the Corinthian letters mm-hmm. of some of the things that were happening, uh, or some of the things that were happening and should not have been happening. You know, yeah, uh, you know, the Lord's supper to, to, seems to be kind of like in two levels. All the wealthy people who don't have to work kind of have a, a big feast and then all the leftovers get left to the slaves or the artisans who actually have to work for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants, he wants a mixture of enthusiasm and decorum um, <laughs> in worship, um, if you like. So, you know, let the spirit move in, in the midst, but it's not kind of like um, uh, pneumatic anarchy that is meant to be going on. And mm. so some of the things he says re- reflect that. Um yeah, in, in terms of, of other churches, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. You, you, that's when you've got to go into some of the church order documents like the Apostolic Constitutions, mm-hmm. um, the Didascalia, and all these other documents from the 2nd and 3rd centuries that lay out the precise order. Um, one interesting thing, I, th- I, think, I think it's from the Apostolic Constitutions. So they, they used to stand for the reading of the Gospels, uh, which is, as a, as primarily as a Gospel scholar, I kind of like. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll sit for Paul, we'll sit for Isaiah, but we stand for the gospel of Luke. Uh, hey, there's so, yeah. there's even a man who fell asleep for Paul, you
0: know, I was preaching. So, I mean, it goes, yeah, pre- well, it goes down go. for him. Yeah. Uh, so when we talk about, uh, you know, the other thing about the apostolic fathers is you do have people like Irenaeus, for example, who are coming, you know, kind of on the heels of this, looking back at Polycarp, looking back at some of these things. And they do, uh, like I was saying earlier, kind of provide a bridge between the new Testament, and maybe some of the more well-known patristic fathers that we know. What do you think we can learn in terms of, how the apostolic tradition continued to be carried on right because this is one of Irenaeus's big arguments with the gnostics is no the apostles said this we know this you know tertullian says we go to the churches that they planted you know that kind of thing like so they're already looking back at the apostles and you do have this little bridge here where at least some of them seem to be influential on you know polycarp on irenaeus and these kind of things so what kind of things can we learn from that what kind of maybe uh, authority may, maybe isn't the right word but what kind of usefulness Can we understand even about just the tradition? You know, you mentioned the canon conversation obviously is different, but there is something too. these people are already quoting Paul in the Gospels, already considering them authoritative. Irenaeus picks up on that. Others do. So what can we learn from some of that kind of bridge building that they're doing there?
1: Yeah, I I think they're trying to do two things. They're trying to pass on and preserve a tradition, Um, but I think they are conscious in varying degrees that they also have to innovate a little bit. And, you know, particularly when you're dealing with aberrant beliefs or deviant beliefs and practices, you've got to explain, well, why is that wrong? You know, why do we need to have a central, I mean, Ignatius is very big on this, you know, you need a a central Episcopal authority to unify the church, you know, listen to the bishop, obey the bishop, don't hold a... um, uh, a Lord's Supper without the bishop or anything like that. Although, I mean, by the way, what, what Ignatius means by the bishop sounds more like senior pastor, yeah. Um, you know, if, if you ask me. So, I mean, he's doing something, you know, in order to deal with internal conflict and external persecution, he kind of wants to make the bishop a unifying force and factor, okay? Now, that's probably a bit more of an innovation compared to what you get in, in other parts of the New Testament. I mean, Paul seems to know of churches with elders, uh, although you could argue that um, in the Jerusalem church, they seem to have an eldership, but one elder is slightly more prominent than the others. So, you know, James is you know, potentially the first Bishop of Jerusalem or something like that. So you, you've got to do a little bit of, you know, continuity and innovation and also in order to uh, overcome the problems internal and external that you're facing. But there, there is a strong consciousness of handing on uh, traditions you know, from Jesus, from the apostles into the early church and recognizing that it's not the case of the latest and the greatest it's it's a case of fidelity to a tradition Mm -hmm. and in particular the tradition seems to be a basic what you would call the biblical story what uh, Irenaeus later calls the regular fidei you know the the rule the rule of faith which is basically the story of God creating the world you know uh, calling the patriarchs the story of Israel the coming of the messiah and then you know, the preaching of the gospel throughout the world through the apostles. You seem to get this kind of basic story. And they regard that story as a kind of controlling and authorizing narrative. And so if you've got a different narrative, the different Jesus, that Jesus was just a mere man who got promoted into divine honors, or you believe that the universe was created by some sort of, you know, weird bubble machine called the Pleroma. <laughs> and one of them kind of created wisdom and wisdom's mother sent wisdom to earth and wisdom kind of, you know, um, had a baby called the Demiurge and the Demiurge made the world, but made it all yucky. And we're kind of stuck here and we need another God. I mean, if, you, if you're telling a story like that, people are saying, no, that's not how the story goes. It's pretty, pretty well, obvious. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different story. It's a different, it's a different issue. So you see the, amongst the apostolic fathers uh, a mixture of sort of fidelity to a, to a tradition, to scripture, but also a consciousness that they are kind of innovating a bit because they're dealing with issues that were not faced by the apostles, like, you know, um, you know the, the date for Easter. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you elect a bishop uh, or, or, or co- a common leader? Um, you know, how far can you participate in civil society, um, you know, without uh, incurring the... the, the the charge of you know becoming pagan mm-hmm. you know uh, that kind of thing so and that's that's what the church fathers i think are, are very useful and that's what we have to do in every age you know you've got continuity to it with a tradition but you've also got to then you know discern within the precincts of your own theological conscience um how you face various ethical issues um socio-political factors um and all sorts of things i mean we had to do it during the pandemic i mean how do you how do you do worship you know, if you, if you can't meet together. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, you know, for the last two years, all of us in varying de- degrees, depending where you are, have been trying to figure out how do we do authentic Christian worship and ministry and mission uh, in, in, a, in a world somewhat confined to, the, to digital spaces mm-hmm. with sort of a very minimal um, physical interaction or physical contact. So, yeah, that's the two things you do in every age, and the apostolic fathers are some of the first people who, who are doing that. Yeah, and you uh, did
0: a chapter in this um, Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers with uh, Kirsten Macaris, did I say that right, Macaris? Kirsten Macaris. I was going to say Macaris, and I thought it was like, am I trying to sound too fancy because I'm a Texan and we don't sound fancy, you know, so (laughs) Macaris, Um, uh, you wrote the chapter uh, with her on uh, Diognetus, and he's an interesting character because, well, the epistle is interesting, I guess, because the authorship is a little bit shady. And a lot of things about it are kind of shady. But one of the things that you bring out in there that I think is helpful is you say, really, it probably belongs more with the apologists, right? Because he's really doing sort of a more formal apology. So from, from the epistle of Diognetus and sort of maybe into Justin Martyr and some of these really, really early apologists, uh, what are some things that we, we learned from Diognetus about, again, about what the world was like then, what Christians were facing? It's a lot of conversation about how heavy or not heavy persecution was in the first century, early second, excuse me.
1: So what do we do with some of that? Okay. The the epistle to Diognetus is sent to someone um, who we don't know it's a real person or it's a fictitious name uh, or or, or that kind of thing. We don't even know the author is the author seems to be a Greek speaking Christian who writes at a sophisticated literary level, um, very keen on the apostle Paul loves the gospel of John uh, interweaves a lot of themes Kind of critiques what you would call pagan worship in a fairly sort of standard way, uh, but then even engages in, in what I would call a somewhat tendentious um, critique of Jewish worship, which is a little bit weird and 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 odd, but it's part of the work. But then goes on to describe you know the, the coming of the Word, you know, to the world, you know what that means. offers this sort of great. Um, summary of the atonement in chapter five, this, you know, great exchange, you know, so when, you know, I love diagnosis because people said, well, you know, the church fathers didn't have any interest in the atonement or penal substitution or mm-hmm. anything. I mean, that's just, that's a bunch of medieval stuff. I mean, that's that's the dark ages where you get the focus on the Christ dying in in, in his death for sinners in his body. It's the medieval nonsense. You say, well, no, actually the, the stuff was a lot earlier than that. And it wasn't mm-hmm. nonsense, by the way, it was, it was core to the, preaching and teaching of the church may not have been quite the same as, you know, um, Puritans are us, right. but they certainly had, they certainly had a, a strong emphasis on the death of Christ for, uh, for sinners. So Dognitis is great in that way. The end of the book is a little bit strange. because We think the final two chapters are kind of um, uh, like a couple of sermons or short homilies um, who have been tacked on at the end, probably maybe even by a different author, so a little bit artificially, but it's a great document um, explaining, you know, the role of Christians in the world about the meaning of Christ's death, uh, particularly big explanation of the incarnation as well. Uh, so it's, it's a really good document and it shows Christians trying to commend their faith to pagans uh, in a way that pagans may find inviting or even convincing. And that's what a lot of other uh, apologists were trying to do. Justin Martyr's got his two apologies. Mm-hmm. You've got Theophilus of um, Antioch, um, Ath- Athenagoras, um, Aristides. So a lot of people are kind of doing this, the same sort of work. I mean, how do you make Christian faith credible, uh, believable, uh, inviting, and attractive to people who haven't read Moses, but they've read Plato? You know, people who... Um, don't know about you know the Jewish way of worship, but they know about the worship of the emperor, or the worship of Jupiter, or Zeus, or Ammon, or mm-hmm. or Dionysus, or, or, or whoever it is. So that that's why I think the apologists are very interesting. They're trying to to defend and articulate the faith um, in a fairly somewhat hostile and contested context.
0: Yeah, I love the I love Justin where he has his yeah to Trifo he's like, hey, you're a Jewish person. Scriptures aren't yours. they are there ours because of Christ. And he does this sort of Theological argument from that side. Then he writes to the Greeks and he's like, You may have heard of Mercury or the sons of Zeus, but let me tell you about the true son or the true Logos, this kind of thing. And so Diognetus does a little bit of that too, right? He interacts with Plato and perhaps Cicero and maybe is pulling on some uh, Platonic conventions. So is that just sort of, would you say that that is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about Platonism in the early church. Uh, Would you say a lot of that, at least for these guys, maybe even for later patristic authors, is a contextual apologetic argument more than sort of imbibing
1: pagan? worldviews or whatever well it's it's a bit of both you have to say a lot of christianity um i mean you can find a lot of stoic themes in paul Mm -hmm. you know particularly when paul talks about things like um self-mastery i mean that's that's a that's a big stoic theme uh so he's a little bit of borrowing of that and in the second century, you do get Christians seem to be expressing something we would call middle Platonism. Mm-hmm. So not on the way back to Plato himself, but, but Platonic philosophy itself developed, uh, particularly in terms of you know, the, the cosmology and the theology uh, behind it. That There's a lot of that uh, in there as well. It's, it's, in many places, it could be quite explicit. Um, so Justin Martyr is kind of, you know, makes a few references to Plato and mm. he'd be like, Oh yeah, if, if Plato was here, he would like totally be one of us. <laughs> and in other places though, it's a little bit more um, unconscious where you've got people kind of uh, developing um, or trying to bring together a biblical narrative and a platonic worldview. And I should say this actually was, was it's not necessarily a, a paganism. I mean, everyone everyone does Christian faith in light of the you know, philosophical zeitgeist of their time, mm-hmm. whether that's the you know, 12th century rediscovery of Aristotle, whether that's the enlightenment, whether that's the sort of, you know, hermeneutics of suspicion in, in, in postmodernism, uh, everyone to some degree or other is a product of their time. And the, uh, the apostolic fathers or the apologists, uh, they, they're no different and no different to us, no, no different to people during the enlightenment. They're kind of trying to, practice Christian faith, tell the story of the scriptures. But, but in light of that, that sort of you know, big worldview that they're, they're a part of and which is shared with others, and they want to show the parity of their scriptures, of their faith, with the highest ideals of, of Greek philosophy. Okay? And even Paul was doing that in the New Testament. He goes to the Areopagus and says, I oh, hear you've got a shrine to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you so you can know this unknown God. Mm-hmm. You know, or you know, he can quote pagan, pagan poets uh, along the way, I mean, John uses the concept of the Logos, uh, which is a, uh, a, a sort of an intermediary principle between the, the uh, immaterial and the material realms between, you know, the sort of, you know, invisible rationality of the cosmos and its material manifestation. He takes that with a few uh, Jewish wisdom themes and then uses that to describe the incarnation. So that, that's it's a somewhat typical uh, program of you know, constantly negotiating scriptures and the, the, the reigning philosophy of the day.
0: Yeah. You've got, you know, Origen who I love so much because he, you know, Celsus basically says, you Christians are a bunch of dumb hillbillies. And he's like, oh yeah, we're better at philosophy than you are. And then kind of goes at him, you know, from that way. So
1: yeah, well, and Oregon Chase, he probably was the, the best philosopher of his day. I think mm-hmm. even the, uh, the Imperial family decided they wanted to have a chat with him. Yeah. Um, it's when you yeah, know you've done he, something, right? Yeah. I like, him with the I says, who's this Origen guy? I mean, let's bring him into Rome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, he's an interesting character as well. He, he's both a, like a text critic and a philosopher and a theologian. And yeah, he's definitely a, a, a person of multiple worlds.
0: So let's switch over to your uh, seven things I wish Christians knew about the Bible. And this is a really good, was it 200 pages, really? I'm not counting indices and things like that. It was a five by eight kind of a smaller book. Um, yeah. So really a good kind of introduction, you know, for students, for new believers. I'm, I'm sure that's sort of, you know, at least part of what you're thinking there. So, We don't have to walk through all seven reasons necessarily, uh, because we don't. We want people to buy the book. We don't want to just. uh, We don't want to explain the book here. But what is some of your uh, impulse behind it? I'm, I'm assuming it's pastoral ministry. It's it's teaching students. It's a lot of different things. But
1: but what kind of got you to writing a kind of introductory book like this? Well, it's a number of things. A number of things. Some of it is partly apologetic because, you know, you get the odd person you meet on the bus or on the plane who says the Bible was invented by Constantine in the 4th century, Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of a thing like that. Uh, Then you get the other sort of extreme view where the Bible just kind of floated from heaven in New old King James English, you know, words of Jesus in red and complete Mm -hmm. with Schofield footnotes. You also get people who, you know, you've got to understand, uh, reading certain parts of the Bible, are difficult you know the you know passages like you know kill all the canaanites kill all the jebusites um what to do with all the female prisoners of war i mean how do we read those difficult parts of the bible so it's one thing to say that the bible is authoritative you know i believe it is Mm uh but that authority is going to work differently uh depending on on the text you're reading i don't think we should be conducting warfare the same way the israelites did against the various canaanite tribes i think in fact that would be a uh, a, a travesty right. um, it's it's one thing to say okay this is the this is the least worst option in a world of ethnic intertribal violence uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was it was good or ideal and you know so certain things like that and I mean how do you read the old testament as a Christian um, you can do a cheesy you know Jesusification of literally everything Mhm. Uh, you, know, which it, and, and, you know, reading the Old Testament in a Jesus-centered way is, is perfectly good. I mean, Jesus seems to have done that. You know, look at the chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke on the road to, the, road to Emmaus with the two travelers there and you know, beginning with Moses and the prophets and he explained all the things concerning himself. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do we read the Old Testament as Christians? Uh, i got to look at some of the I words. You know, what is, what is inspiration? What is inerrancy? Uh, there are always you know big ones that come up for discussion and uh, debate. So yeah, just sort of dealing with the several topics that are you know useful and apologetics and are some of those sort of gnawing questions that Christians can sometimes have about the Bible authority, interpretation, and application.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's maybe touch on a couple of them. Your first chapter is the Bible didn't fall out of the sky, which you mentioned here, and you mentioned even earlier a little bit about the process of canonization and stuff like that. So. What are some of the things you're trying to get out there? What are maybe some of the, the big misconceptions that you're trying to
1: fight against and where do you take it? Well, one of the questions I ask students is how do you know which books should be in the Bible? I mean, because the Bible was not revealed with a table of contents. So how, how do you know which book should be in the Bible? That's because mm-hmm. we I go to my sort of, you know, my NIV or my ESV t- um, title page and it, and you, table of contents. and It tells me all the books in the Bible, yeah, but, but how did you decide that? Uh, and you can go two routes there you can sort of have the view that, well, the Roman Catholic Church they are the ones who tell you what the book is, what book should be in the Bible. They made the Bible. If they like, they can unmake the Bible. They can rewrite the Bible if they like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one view. Uh, not going to endear you to a lot of Protestants, uh, but a lot of Protestant apologists seem to think that the apostles kind of went around with like a, like an inspirational meter, you know, and they, they find like, you know, a, a manuscript of Romans. You'd be like, do, 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 like, you know, positive reading for inspiration <laughs> or, Okay, you, you run something over like the, the Gospel of Thomas, and it goes woo, 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 like a big warning light or something like that. Uh, that they kind of went around and they discovered these inspired texts, and they had some particular quality or something in them that obviously well made it obvious that they were inspired. But the church for two hundred years or more, um, you know, d- debated what 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 were the at least what were the boundary. I think that the core was pretty clear earlier. They recognized at least the four Gospels. Uh, the letters of Paul, plus Hebrews, one Peter, and one John. But it was on the edges of that they had some questions. You know, what about James? You know, what about the book of Revelation? Uh, what about the Didache? You know, which we refer to, mm-hmm. or the, another popular writing, the Shepherd of Hamas? I mean, that one, These these were two very popular Christian writings, um, you know, from the, uh, the period just after the New Testament. But the consensus seems to have developed. It wasn't imposed top down. It was something that sort of, you know, appeared um, amongst the East and the West was that the register of sacred books was, you know, pretty much the 27 books we have in the New Testament. Um, some people still had some questions about Revelation or Second Peter. Some people kind of, you know, still wish that the Didache or the Shepherd of Hamas was in there. That was the genuine consensus, consensus which emerged because these were the writings that go back to the apostles. These are the writings that um, seem to align with the apostolic faith. These are the writings that are used in the East and the West, and they're used in worship. They're used to form uh, doctrine as well. And so that, that's how we get our register of, of sacred books. And uh, we could talk about some other sort of you know, things about these books called the Apocrypha, which were you know, given. These are books that are, were in the Septuagint, the Greek scriptures, uh, but not in the Hebrew Bible. Again, it's a little bit more complicated, but generally that's the case. Mm-hmm. And certainly from the time of Jerome, they were given a kind of secondary status, uh, not on, quite on the same level as the Old and New Testament, but still regarded as useful and important for knowing about the world of the Bible and with their own valuable ethical instructions. And then amongst the reformers, um, whether you're Anglican or, or uh, Presbyterian, then they have a few different ideas about the relevance and value of the, uh, of the Apocrypha. And what
0: are some, maybe three big ideas you've got, I mean, so I can just, I'll just read the chapters out so people can kind of hear where you're going. And again, we don't have to hit all of them, but the Bible didn't fall out of the sky. The Bible is divinely given and humanly composed. Scripture is normative, not negotiable. The Bible is for our time, but not about our time. We should take the Bible seriously, but not always literally, which that's, that's the one you're hitting a lot of evangelicals in the, in the gut with Uh, the purpose of scripture is knowledge, faith, love, and hope. And seven, Christ is the center of the Christian Bible. So if you could give a pastor, a student, a person who has wanted to do research in Bible and theology, because this is one of those books where it'd be easy for a pastor who's been preaching for 40 years to say, I already know this stuff. But what would be maybe a couple of things you would say, hey, these are things that I I see missed a lot. I see people overlook a lot that I really want to get across in this book for Christians to help them understand the Bible better.
1: I think one thing is Reading the Bible in like a historical context uh, is very important. A statement like, you know, give me liberty or give me death. You know, I mean, that has a context. You know, it's not, to- liberty is not an insurance company, okay? <laughs> uh, liberty Mutual or something like that, or, or a university in Virginia. So words have a meaning in a context. Um, Pharisees are not just paragons of religious hypocrisy. They are a particular sort of faction within Judaism with some stated goals, um, some stated um, characters distinctive characteristics about interpretation and what they're trying to achieve. You can't just say that like, Oh, well, anyone who's religiously hypoc- hypocritical, that's the sum and extent of Pharisaism. It's, mm-hmm. it's well, yeah, they were a bit, uh, they could be hi- hypocritical as the Jesus presents them, but they were more than that. Okay. So you've got to understand a little bit about historical context or, I mean, things like, you know, when um, like, I mentioned before the Lord's supper, you know uh, you know, you should never partake of the Lord's supper in an, in an unworthy manner. You know, you know what, what does that mean? Well, in, in context, it, it, it's basically where the, the richer members of the congregation are leaving nothing for the poorer members. Uh, and yet I've heard ridiculous numbers of, uh, of pre-communion sermons just kind of twist that. So it's got nothing to do with the context. You know, like if you've got some unconfessed sin in your heart against Auntie Betty or something, then maybe you should not have communion. It's got nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. So historical context um, really, really matters. The the other thing I would would want to say is that the biggest debate today, if you ask me, uh, is not over, you know, which type of inerrancy do you believe? Do you believe in a hard inerrancy, a soft inerrancy? Are you anti-inerrancy? Those debates were, I think, more of a, a modernist phenomena about how you negotiate the truthfulness of the Bible. The biggest debate today is, is the Bible in any sense normative? Should the Bible in any way be followed? And I go through the book and basically you get some appeal of a more progressive bent. So, OK, look, the Bible is good, but you have to take out all of the patriarchal heteronormative stuff. And then you kind of get some nice little progressive bits. And that's the bits that you can keep. OK, so in other words, people's own political uh, intuitions or dispositions are driving which parts of the Bible they think are true. I mean, that and happens on the conservative side as well. You know, mm. uh, I'm only going to affirm the Bible for the bits that agree with my socio political projects, which is very dangerous because you end up with a kind of pick and choose uh, approach to the Bible or you're just, you know, um, becoming, you know, what you might call a buffet Baptist and just picking the bits of the Bible that line up with the sort of the political establishment that you like. I think that today, that is the biggest issue. Not, you know, do you believe in a hard or soft inerrancy or anything like that? And then finally, I mean, you've got to deal with like, yeah, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of scripture? Um, It's not just a rule book. It's not just, it's not mythology. It's not just interesting stories. I think it's trying to do certain things. It's trying to bring us to faith in God, to knowledge of God. And and I remember reading uh, Romans 15, where Paul says, just in passing, uh, one of the purposes of Scripture, so that we would have hope. So the the Bible is trying to to give us hope, uh, confidence uh, in God's faithfulness to us in Christ. And I, I think some of those things we've got to remember about the purposes of Scripture. Okay, hey, one final thing that I, I thought was a really interesting appendix.
0: I'm trying to figure out if that was, you thought it was a chapter and then your publisher said no, and it turned into an appendix, which is how a lot of appendices uh, come up. But you have the, the top five Old Testament texts in the New Testament. So maybe give just a little bit of a hint of that, because I think that's a, that is a that is a big interpretive question in and of itself in some sense that I think you're, you're raising there.
1: Yeah, for me, there's nothing more terrifying than asking um, college students or seminary students, how do you preach Jesus from the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. And they go, well, you know, Psalm 23, maybe Isaiah 53. After that, I got nothing. I got nothing mm-hmm. after that. And I tell them, man, read the Psalms. I mean, if you look at the apostles, when they preach Jesus, they're preaching Jesus mostly from the Psalms. It's Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Or it's Psalm 2 2:7, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. Or it's from Psalm 118. Um, you know, the, the, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this. and it's marvelous in our eyes. I mean, this is how they preach Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about some other things as well, like um, Leviticus 19, 80, 18, you know, um, you know uh, lo- love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's, that's very common. Uh, there's also a lot of references or allusions to Daniel 7. You know, the son of man comes before the ancient of days. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're going to have a scripturally soaked imagination and have apostolic hermeneutics, like interpreting the New and the Old Testament, like an apostle, it helps if you can just lodge in your mind the main, you know, four or five texts that the apostles would always go to because they that summed up their preaching of Jesus and their vision of the Christian life. So, yeah, that was a little bit of um, something created artificially and synthetically at the end. It was kind of like, but I really want this in, but the editor says, but it doesn't go anywhere where you want to put it, but I really want to put it in, but it doesn't fit anywhere. And we kind of Struck a compromise um, uh, and stuck in, made an appendix because I I mean I think it's useful I think it's useful knowing about what were the Old Testament passages that the apostles used to uh, to preach and explain Jesus.
0: Well, you have it right after the seventh chapter. Christ is the center of the Christian Bible. So really, what you did was just extended that chapter by ten pages. You just keep going through it and just add it right on there.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: All right, Michael, well, thanks so much for hopping on. Hopefully, this was helpful for others just to give them some introductions, some of these kind of things. So appreciate it.